This is a Crestview Bible Podcast. For more information, visit crestviewhutch.org. If I can start out a message by flexing my age, I vividly remember sitting in a high school classroom in um, 1991 when the REM album, Automatic for the People, came out. Uh, one track from that project, um, the first, like I, um, I opened the day with an independent study class in computer science that I finished in March of my senior year. So you can imagine what those last two months were like for me. My third hour, I had another computer programming class that um, I finished in March as well. So um, like my first three hours of the day, I had Spanish in second hour. So it was just like a dream for a senior. And so we would just turn the radio on and listen to music. And um, this album came out, Automatic for the People. And there's one track on that project that says, Everybody Hurts. And it's inviting listeners to persevere through difficulty. So when your day is long and the night, the night is yours alone. When you, sh- when you are sure that you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go because everybody cries. Everybody hurts sometimes. Another part of the song reminders le- uh, reminds listeners that if you, feel like, if you feel like you're alone, no, 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 you're not alone. Um, it's just helping us to see this. And, and like it resonated in my soul. This is, a, this is like what we believe to be true. We want to persevere through suffering. We're not alone. Um, maybe alternative music from the 90s isn't your thing. So um, any country song you pull up on Spotify probably gets to this too, right? Um, you know, like we were singing country songs in the men's restroom when I was in there this morning um, because, because Big Bad John came in. Um, and then, you know, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. You know, all the classics. Um, so every country song really deals with the wallows of misery that are really ours in life. And again, if alternative music or music isn't your thing, in the Reformation, St. John of the Cross was a priest in Spain who spoke of the dark night of the soul. And listen to how he talked about God's actions toward him. That he struck me on the neck with his gentle hand and all sensation left me. This is the reality that he feels. And on top of these examples, as a pastor here, especially uh, since the adventures we had in 2020 have happened, I know what many of us have gone through. We have felt the sting of physical suffering as we face sicknesses, diagnoses, losses, hurt, and pain. And I still haven't met anyone who asked for those things. Uh, Nobody in the church was like, you know, I was really asking for that. And so I'm so thankful that God brought that my way. Um, On top of that, we've felt mental suffering, such as family hurts, the loss of loved ones, hurts that are inflicted on us by others, hurts we didn't ever ask for, and the challenges to our mental health and traumas that have left deep emotional marks on us. We've all felt that. And speaking of emotions, we've been angry, sad, paralyzed, numb, and disappointed. And I'm confident this summary doesn't get at the emotions that are alive and well in this room. Uh, They're not getting to all the hurt and all the suffering. I'm just trying to, 
I'm trying to summarize those in a way that these are things that I know of and there's more that I know of, but I can't really say that, so this is, this is where we're at. Um, so I'm, I'm aware there's much heavier situations that weigh on me continually. And unfortunately, a lot of times I don't have good answers for these things. On top of the suffering in the church, we do have some answers of what's going on in our lives when suffering comes. So, for instance, the Bible says that God's working all things for the good of his people. Or we read that we should count it as joy because trials produce perseverance. And we love this kind of trite refrigerator magnet way of doing life because it's gonna protect us from getting dirty or having to be with people when we don't have good answers for them. So we say to them things like, hey, God's working this for good. Or, man, count it joy. God's working perseverance in you. And we've nearly lost our humanity when we rush to verses like this because it can minimize, um, it can minimize the hurt that people feel. Um, it can minimize our ability to help others think that suffering is real. Um, to feel suffering almost denies our faith. And so we, we feel like we're forfeiting something if we just say to someone, man, this is such a difficult situation. It stinks. I'm sorry. We feel like we have to say more and fix it all right then, which leads me to Coldplay, right? So uh, where do we go? What do we do with such a reality? Coldplay would say, lights will guide you home and ignite your bones, and I will try to fix you. Um, but what if God was up to something more? What if God was up to something more? Is it really our job to fix others um, or what? Now, I'm belaboring a point in the introduction here because that's what we get to do in introductions. This is why we're starting a shortish series on the book of Job. So 42 chapters we're gonna do in about nine weeks. We're not gonna handle all the chapters, but uh, hopefully what we're doing is gonna give you a sense of the book. I'm gonna introduce this to you this morning. And my hope is that, like all that I hope this accomplishes this morning is that you would long for the wisdom of God's word in the book of Job. I want you to want that. I want you to walk out of here this morning and say, man, I can't wait to get into this book and I'm terrified to get into this book. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed. The Victorian essayist, Thomas Carlyle, wrote of the book of Job that it is the greatest book ever written with a pen. The greatest book ever written with a pen. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? This series that we're venturing into isn't merely about suffering. It's about understanding a book of the Bible that gives us wisdom for living. That's why, you know, when you break down different books of the Bible into different sections, you have the law, the Torah, that's what, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, you have books of history, which are telling Old Testament history. You have the prophets, but you have these wisdom writings. So you have um, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Psalms, and the book of Job. It's weird that it's placed in that genre of literature. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is living with the reality of the fear of the Lord um, with a kind of a boots on the ground reality that we fear the Lord and out of that we're living um, a different way. And I think Job is helping us see the effect of his word as we enter into suffering. So what, what might be the effect if God's word coming to us about Job entered our bloodstream? By the way too, 
Um, can we just have a lot of patience with people who see Job on paper and call it Job? Um, the book of Job. So um, if somebody says that to you, don't be like, oh, I can't believe, you know, you should know better. You know, it's, it's okay. We have people that are newer to church life. And so our graphic for this series puts the macron over the letter O, you know, the long O so that you can remember it's Job. Um, that's way more information than you needed, but um, I just want to give us, let's give grace to one another. Um, how might it affect our lives if we could step into living a certain way based on what we learn in this book? Um, what, if, what if Jesus himself proved to be the key to understanding what's going on in this book? What difference would that make in your life? Um, on the Emmaus Road, <clears throat> as Jesus is explaining how all of the law and the prophets and the writings point to him, he undoubtedly landed in this book. He undoubtedly ended up in the book of Job and said, hey, you know, see all that? That points to me. He undoubtedly landed there. So we're going to see glimpses of him. This book's going to provoke us to worship. It's going to encourage us in our hearts. And ultimately, it's going to help us marvel at our Savior. Uh, so would you join me as we see three ways that the book of Job helps us? And to get us springboarded into the book, James chapter 5, verse 11 James chapter five, verse 11. So keep your finger at the start of Job if you want, but James chapter five, verse 11 is encouraging us to persevere in the midst of suffering. And we have this curious phrase right in the middle of the verse from a New Testament book. Um, so it's helping us see this isn't, what, this isn't just like urban folklore. They believe this really happened and we should too. Uh, James five eleven b Look at that right in the middle of the verse. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So this is God's word. Thanks be to God. So three ways that the book of Job is going to help us. And we see that in James 5.11. I'm going to come back there at the very end. So if you want to go to Job. And uh, here's the first part. The book of Job helps us because it prepares us for unexplained suffering. Unexplained suffering. So the Bible talks about suffering coming to us for lots of different reasons and ways. There's various kinds of suffering. So we know, for instance, that some suffering we face is directly related to sin. We've done something wrong. God might allow a punishment to come our way. He loves those whom he chastens. Some of God's purpose might be allowing suffering to come to us when we sin so that we repent and turn to him. In some suffering, God is working on spiritual growth somehow in us. Um, so he's working to provoke us to grow spiritually. There's suffering that comes with persecution. So because we stand up for our faith and believe in God, that gets us into trouble sometimes from the world and that's suffering due to persecution. Or there's even the suffering that comes with a wilderness-like experience in the Bible where God was distant so that he could help his people learn to trust him despite their actions. So think about the children of Israel in the wilderness where God's distant. You know, you're gonna go your own way? Okay, let's try that out and see how it works for you so that they would trust him and not their own actions. Even the Psalms, uh, there's Psalms of lament. And if you read those Psalms of lament, typically there's some sort of vindication or restoration that needs to happen where God's gonna come through and God's gonna, you know, God, how long are these wicked people gonna do their thing? Or how long am I gonna travail in this? With the idea that God, bring it back, restore this. Um, come through. But how would you navigate a situation like this? 
So let's imagine you're friends with a young couple in your church, in our church, who have had trouble having children. One day they're overjoyed when they tell you that they're expecting twins. But when the wife goes into early labor, one child dies and the other is born with severe physical and mental disabilities. The strain of simultaneously grieving and caring for the new child, together with mounting medical bills, sends their marriage into a tailspin. The couple separates. And so you call one of them to check up and you learn that the wife is moving toward divorce. And to top it all off, their friends at church are so intent on giving advice and fixing the problem, the, the couple stops going to church at all. And let's say, as you talk to this friend, he says something like this. How could God let this happen to me? I've never been a perfect Christian, but I confessed sin when I needed to. If this is payback for my failures, why did it happen now? When I, when I was just a new Christian and still had a lot of bad habits, if it's for some sin I don't know about, why doesn't God make that sin clear to me? Is sin such a threat to God that he has to destroy my life for it? And if God's trying to teach me something or grow me as a Christian, couldn't he find some other way to do that without one of my children dying and my marriage collapsing? Am I really that hopeless? And if this is all to teach me some lesson, he's not making it clear to me. I haven't felt his presence in months. Maybe God isn't the person I thought he was. If there was any goodness in him, wouldn't he have guided my life differently? I can't help but think the further I am from God, the safer I am. What reason could God possibly have for letting that, this happen? How am I supposed to go to church and sing about how wonderful God is after this? If anyone else took the life of one of my children and ruined my marriage, they'd be in jail. How am I supposed to love and trust someone who does this? And even if God restores my marriage and gives us more children, how could I ever forget what he did to me? And what if he does it again in the future? How can I ever feel safe around him again? So this is an imaginary situation that Eric Orland laid out, um, and it's awful, but it's not implausible. Probably most of us know someone who's suffered in similar ways. Maybe some of you in this room have suffered in similar ways and you have similar questions. And here's how the book of Job helps. Job's going to try to explain his calamity in relation to some sin on his part. So something he's done that's sin, and he's gonna come up empty. We're gonna see that in Job 7, Job 10. Job's gonna reject the idea of waiting for life to rebalance itself in Job 7, 7. There's no possible return to normalcy that's gonna comfort Job, for God himself has become a stranger to him according to Job 23, 13 to 17. Job doesn't know what else to think except that God was not the person Job thought he was. And terrifyingly, Job starts to wonder if God is really good and fair in chapter nine, verses 22 to 24. So the book of Job reveals suffering with the intensity of pain and all of its inexplicableness. Like it's unexplained. A Job-like ordeal is one in which it's impossible to keep a stiff upper lip and just keep going on, and uh, one in which the pain is so extreme and it's just impossible to imagine any return to normalcy or even desire that, any return to normal or, or want that. Any reversal of fortunes just seems like inadequate to the loss that you've suffered. 
A Job-like ordeal is also one in which our pain simply makes no sense. Like, what am I supposed to make of this? Why did I have to go through that? We try again and again to explain why we are suffering and like waves crashing against the rock, every explanation fails. And as I think about our life together in the body, um, that's what I think about what our church has faced over the last few years. So how kind of it, how kind of God it is to give us an entire book to help us navigate this. And do, you, do you feel God's kindness in that? He's saying, this is the reality. So here's a book to help you. I mean, this is how kind he's being to us. One writer puts it this way. Job is a fireball book. It's a staggeringly honest book. It's a book that knows what people actually say and think, not just what they say publicly in church. It knows what people say behind closed doors and it whispers and it knows what we say in our tears. It's not merely an academic book. If we listen to it carefully, it's gonna touch us, trouble us and unsettle us at a deep level. And this isn't just all bad news. If you read the end of the book of Job, um, there are some of the most profound words on joy that are written in the Bible are found at the end of the book of Job. It's amazing. So God puts this story here so that suffering doesn't have to have the most profound word in our lives, especially unexplained suffering, where we're scratching our heads going, what exactly is God up to in this? How can he possibly be doing this? What's going on here? This book prepares us for that. And so I'm hoping as this book gets into our hearts, we can be affected for good, even amid difficulties. So that's one way it prepares us. It prepares us for unexplained suffering. It also helps us as it shapes our view of body life in the church. So the book of Job actually um, models or demonstrates some things for us. It helps us function better as the church. So we have to come to terms with what trusting Jesus means. And so um, I think on one level, I, I'm thinking of this like in two levels. On one level, it's like a gospel issue. How we think about suffering relates to what we believe about good news. And here's the sense in which we're, it's a gospel issue. Because the threat of the prosperity gospel is real in our world. And the prosperity gospel goes like this, that if I'm poor, meaning I'm financially or materially poor, and I come to Jesus, Jesus is gonna make me rich. If I'm sick and I pray to Jesus, Jesus is gonna make me well. And if I want a wife or a husband and I ask Jesus for one, he will give me a wife or a husband. If a couple wants Jesus and calls out to Jesus, Jesus will give them children and on and on we could go. This is the prosperity gospel. This is like, you believe in Jesus, um, like, uh, this is in some movie, like, the Lord's my shepherd, he knows what I want. <laughs> you know, it's like a, um, a black preacher preaching, it's awesome. But as Christopher Ash points out, what if, as in some parts of the world, I'm already rich? I may not think of myself as particularly rich, but I have running water. I don't worry about having enough food. I have a roof over my head, I have adequate clothing, um, and maybe a lot more than that. But I'm, in terms of the world at large, I'm pretty rich. Perhaps I'm also healthy, happily married, and have children. What happens to the prosperity gospel when I already enjoy prosperity? Well, it metamorphosizes or it changes into a therapeutic gospel. 
in its simplest form, the therapeutic gospel says that if I feel empty and come to Jesus, he'll fill me. So instead of the promise of objective goods like money, wife, husband, and children, it's things like subjective benefits. That if I feel depressed, then Jesus promises to lift my spirits. I'll never feel depressed. If I feel aimless, Jesus commits himself to giving me purpose in life. If I feel empty inside, then Jesus is gonna fill me. This is really the gospel of self-fulfillment. So it makes me, already healthy and wealthy, feel good. And the book of Job addresses that in a deep and unsettling way. It addresses the prosperity part, like just giving you all the stuff to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or healthy and wealthy, wise is a good thing. Um, and the pseudo-gospel of just that Jesus came just so we could feel good. The therapeutic gospel. So what is it doing? It's centering us. This book has come and centering us on what the good news actually is. What did Jesus come to do? Now, you might be confused with this uh, because you might think, well, doesn't Jesus have an impact on those things? Like if I'm feeling aimless or depressed? Yes, uh, he does affect that. But we have to do something with Job, right? We have to do something with this book. He's not merely here for that purpose. He's not just here to make you feel good. He's here to accomplish something way more than that. And when we settle for that, then we get messed up, it gets distorted. The book of Job, as you probably well know, comes with some characters too. We have three friends of Job who will have, will have some interaction with these friends. And we have God respond and tell us what he really thinks of these friends. So I like calling them the wise guys. Um, they're gonna prove instructive for us because they demonstrate what kind of people we need to be in the church, how we need to function. So like I said in the introduction, we feel we have a sense of what God's up to in people's lives. So we say, well, I know what God's up to here. I mean, he's working this for your good, right? I think that's a promise. We know that God's working all things for good, according to Romans eight. But what if the good doesn't come till eternity? Is he still enough? So, I think we just need to be careful in the moment to know, I know exactly what God's doing in your life right now. Hey, just be careful. You don't wanna be one of Job's friends, I promise. You get to the end of Job, you don't wanna be one of those guys. <laughs> so uh, it's gonna be instructive for us as the church. And we do well to learn, for them, learn from them. If unexplained suffering is real, then how we function as a body needs to be a concern for us as well. And so the book of Job is gonna help shape us, shape life together in the church. And third and finally, uh, this book helps us because the book of Job ultimately points to Jesus. I mean, those of you that have heard me preach for a while, you knew I would probably get here at some point. Um, this book points us to Jesus. A scholar who's beat his head against the wall and studied this book for years laments the difficulty and the hope. And here's what he says, again and again, as I've beaten my head against these puzzling and seemingly intractable texts, it has been the cross of Christ that has shown light on the page. This is not to say that the book is not about Job and his ancient context, of course it is. But Job's experience, Job's debates, Job's struggles, Job's sufferings 
and Job's final blessings all come to fruition in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ in his life and death and then in his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation at God's right hand. So we need to, like, we're kind of looking through Job to see Jesus. We're looking, because the introduction to Job, if you go home today and read Job 1, you're gonna see, like, man, this guy's almost like Jesus. I mean, he's perfect, blameless, righteous. There's no one like him on the face of the earth, but he's still a sinner. There's only one perfect who's ever lived, Jesus. So to put it another way, um, here's this writer again. The more I've bashed my head against the text of Job year after year, the more deeply convinced I've become that the book ultimately makes no sense without the obedience of Jesus Christ. His obedience to death on a cross. Job is not every man, he is not even every believer, but there's something desperately extreme about Job. He foreshadows one man whose greatness exceeded even Job's, whose sufferings took him deeper than Job, and whose perfect obedience to the Father was only anticipated by a faint outline in Job. The universe needed one man who would lovingly and perfectly obey his heavenly father in the entirety of his life and death, by whose obedience the many would be made righteous. And that person is Jesus. So as we get into the depths of this, we can look and see Jesus went way deeper. As we see Job abandoned, we can think Jesus was abandoned in way more significant ways. And when we see just how perfectly Jesus obeyed and went there willingly. Oh, I hope it humbles you to look to him for hope. Look to him for hope. Jesus was the one who was tempted, as the writer of Hebrews says, tempted in every way as we are, even amid unexplained suffering, yet without sin. So I hope you can walk away week in and week out in this series, marveling at the glorious person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the light in the dark valleys of our sufferings. The book of Job, the book of Job ultimately points to him. So um, I know we need to wrap up. We've seen these three ways the book helps us. It prepares us for unexplained suffering. It shapes our view of body life in the church and it points us to Jesus. So today, um, I tried to be broad enough and I undoubtedly may have touched on some sort of hurt in your own life. And you may be trying to juggle all of this on your own apart from Christ. And would you consider what a relationship with him might bring? Jesus has not promised that in this life you wouldn't face difficulty. In fact, he's promised the opposite, exactly. He's promised in this life you will have trouble. But he's been there and done that. He's already walked in the trouble way before you ever did. He knows what it is to suffer. So would you look to him and trust him would you look to him to find hope? The Bible calls this belief or faith. That's where this concept comes from, meaning that you lean on him more than you lean on your understanding to find hope. So we try to find hope in all kinds of elusive ways. Like I had a real stressful week last week and all that I was going through and man, I found hope in a can of Pringles, right? And it was satisfying for a moment because the dusting of those cheese on the Cheezums was good, but it doesn't satisfy. That's just a cheap hope, right? Well, with inflation, it's a moderately cheap hope. 
Um, but Jesus is, Jesus is a hope that lasts. Uh, so I'm not saying that you believe in Jesus and you won't have any mental troubles. You won't have any issues with any kind of suffering or anything. I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying life is gonna deal this to you. And what are you holding on to? Yourself, your own understanding, you carving out this niche, Pringles? Or are you gonna hold on to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know what's going on, but I got you. You've been there and done that. You give me hope. That's what it is to believe. That's what it is to trust him. And if you're a believer here, um, we're stepping in to study this book for a season. And it's long, um, 42 chapters. So um, I've broken it down. I've been reading it for a while. You know that's my rhythm when I'm prepping to preach something. I'm reading it like six months in advance. And I've been reading through it um, over the course of two weeks. So a few chapters a day. Um, so just uh, go home and start reading. Read a few chapters and wrestle with that. So um, I think the length of the book of Job, this is just my speculation, but I think the length is part of God's way of saying answers aren't always easy. Answers aren't always easy. Like we want the book of Job to be distilled into, you know, Phil, can't you just summarize this real easily for me? And I'm saying, I, I don't know that I can. It's 42 chapters and there's a lot of poetry in there. Like, if we're in Paul's letters, man, I feel cool, I'm working the languages, I'm you know, flexing knowledge and all this stuff. But when we're working in Old Testament poetry, I'm like drowning, you know. I need the scuba gear, you know, it's, uh, it's deep. So this book is not gonna be a quick fix for you. We're going to dig and dig and dig and hopefully uh, we're gonna make some progress through that. And I would encourage you, start digging. Dig into some of this poetry. What is he saying here? This is crazy. This is bewildering. So further, um, yeah, chapters one and two and chapters 42, they're prose. They're telling us a narrative. They're telling us a story. The rest of the book is poetry. So poetry makes you linger and wonder. Like, what is this author saying? Poetry can be bewildering. So we're in for a journey but we have hope because of this passage in James. That's why I read that at the start. Passage in James, James 5.11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So might that be the case for us, that as we consider Job's dogged determination, as we consider his steadfastness, as we consider his perseverance, might we see the Lord? Might we see him? We know that he's compassionate and merciful. So we're coming into this, James is saying, you know this, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've heard how he persevered. You know there's all kinds of trials coming his way. And you also know that the Lord's compassionate and merciful. So let's go. Let's go, let's take all this together and go for it. Let's see what God has for us in his word. What new mercies might he, we find as we study this together? So as the people who want to know Jesus and make him known to others, Let's glorify and enjoy God forever as we explore this book. And we're in for quite a ride, so let's go.